0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 40. Last week, I covered the recorded history of Syria, from about 3000 BC to the 20th century. Remember, I chose to cover Syria now, because the area was embedded in the Battle of Siddam narrative. If you missed last week's episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the history of Syria in the 20th century before you drop me a note explaining how this isn't part of the core mission of the podcast which as a reminder is to cover the history of the peoples that were not directly in the old or new testaments nonetheless impacted the religion please recognize that i am aware of this at the same time the history of the area impacts us today and therefore has some bearing on the future of christianity and also I cannot drop off at any point without tying it into today's news. So please allow me the freedom of this one episode. And one more programming note. This week, I'm breaking in a new recording studio. So if the audio seems a little different, it probably is. There shouldn't be any major annoyances, but if there are, I'll get them remedied shortly. I appreciate your understanding. So let's get started. In 1946... Syria became independent after a period of French occupation and mandate, a period that lasted from 1917 until 1946. Syria officially became independent on April 17, 1946. Syrian politics from independence then through the late 1960s were marked by turmoil, not terribly dissimilar from today. By way of example, between 1946 and 1956, Syria had 20 different cabinets and drafted four separate constitutions. In 1948, Syria participated in the Arab-Israeli War, obviously aligning with the other Arab states who sought to defeat the new nation of Israel. The Syrian army invaded the northern part of Israel, and following a vicious fight, they were driven back to the Golan Heights by the Israelis. In July 1949, the Israelis and the aligned Arab nations agreed on an armistice, the agreement established a demilitarized zone, essentially controlled by the United Nations. But, it was this demilitarized zone that has proven to be contentious in the Syrian-Israeli relations ever since. It was also during this time that many Jews living in Syria began to face increasing persecution, and then fled Syria as part of a continuing Jewish exodus from many Arab countries. The war, and its outcome, led to a coup d'etat by Colonel Hassin al-Zim in March 1949. This is thought to have been the first military overthrow of a government in the modern Arab world, at least since World War II. And apparently there was contagion, as it was soon followed by another coup in Syria led by Colonel Sami al-Hiniwe. Not to be outdone... Army officer Adib Shishakali seized power in the third military coup of 1949. I guess the third time really is the charm. Actually, it was not. The citizenry were not pleased, and growing discontent eventually led to another coup in February 1954, when Shishakali was overthrown. In this coup, the Arab Socialist Ba'ath Party, founded in 1947, played a vital role in the overthrow of Shishakali. Veteran nationalist Shakuri al kawatali then became president from 1955 until 1958. But as a note, by 1958, his office was mostly ceremonial. At that time, political power was becoming increasingly concentrated in the military, which, as they had repeatedly proven, were the only force capable of seizing power. But they couldn't really keep it, as there was always another faction, or general, trying to outmaneuver the last. The elected government, really just the parliament, remained weak. Overall, it was controlled by competing parties, namely the economic elite on one side, and the urban, well-known Sunni Muslims on the other. All throughout this period, management of the economy was bungled, and the economically disadvantaged were largely ignored. Then, in November 1956, as a direct result of the Suez Crisis, Syria allied with the Soviet Union, providing a foothold for the Soviets in the Middle East. In exchange for this, the Soviets sent all sorts of armament and munitions, such as planes, tanks, and other military equipment. But this threatened to tip the balance of power in the region. Turkey, Syria's neighbor to the north, and a member of the anti-Soviet alliance known as NATO, was not at all happy with the arming of the Syrians. And, the Syrians and Soviets accused Turkey of massing its troops on the Syrian border. Thankfully, the conflict remained cold, only leading to heated disputations at the United Nations. I should have mentioned earlier that both Syria and the Soviets were original members of the UN. During this, and for numerous reasons, both the Syrians and Egyptians sought out each other for an alliance. To the Syrians, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser's leadership was appealing, especially after the Suez Crisis. Then, February 1, 1958, Syrian President Al-Kuatli and Egyptian President Nasser announced the two states would merge, creating a new union known as the United Arab Republic. And the only land separating them was Israel, who no doubt stood up and took notice. But the Union was not a success. Big surprise there. The Syrians were not pleased with the perceived Egyptian dominance of the Union, which led groups opposed to the Union under Ad al karim al-Nalawi to seize power in Syria on September 28, 1961. A mere two days later, Syria re-established itself as the Syrian Arab Republic. The remainder of the 1960s in Syria would see frequent coups, military revolts, and civil uprisings, none of which are the recipe for a prosperous society. In 1963 there was yet another coup, this one leading to control by a group known as the National Council of the Revolutionary Command. This was a group of military and civilian officials who assumed control of all executive and legislative authority. Of course, can an unelected group assume control of a legislature? I think it would be more accurately described as dissolving it. The seizure was designed by members of the Ba'ath Party, led by Mikhail Aflach and Salih al-Dinin al bitar All of the new ministers were Ba'ath Party members, and al batar became premier of Syria. Yeah, it wouldn't last either, as he was overthrown in early 1966 by left-leaning military dissidents of the party led by General Salah Hadid. With Hadid in control... Syria once again aligned itself with the Soviet bloc and began to re-pursue rigid policies towards Israel. And it also distanced itself from other Arab states, especially Saudi Arabia. It called for what was dubbed a People's War against Zionism. Domestically, Hadid attempted to quickly transform Syria into a socialist state. This led to internal unrest and, of course, economic problems. As dictators generally do, Hadid suppressed his critics. And the Ba'ath Party replaced parliament as the lawmaking organization. Other political parties were banned. As you would suspect, the public support for his government waned greatly following Syria's defeat in the 1967 Six-Day War. It was during this conflict that Israel destroyed much of Syria's air force and captured the Golan Heights. At the same time, Syria and Israel were in a warm conflict over their different interpretations of the legal status of the demilitarized zone left over from the Arab-Israeli War. Israel argued that it had sovereign rights over the zone and allowed their civilian citizens to use much of the area as farmland. Syria and the UN maintained that no party had sovereign rights over the zone. Israel was then alleged by Syria of using armored tractors backed by Israeli forces to farm the land. You know, I'm not quite certain what an armored tractor is. Syria also asserted that the state of affairs was the result of an Israeli intent to increase tension and then to use the tension to justify large-scale aggression. The theory continued that Israel would expand its occupation of the demilitarized zone and dissolved the rights of the Arab farmers. Syrians claimed that Israel provoked more than 80% of the clashes with Syria. But as you may suspect, not everyone supported the Syrian regime. Tensions were building between conservative army officers and the more moderate civilians in the Ba'ath Party. Then, in 1970, Syrian forces were sent to aid the Palestinian Liberation Organization, a.k.a. the PLO during their so-called Black September conflict with Jordan. These hostilities with Jordan were indicative of the brewing discontent within the ruling Ba'ath leadership, and Syria's intervention did not go well, as they were soon retreating. Then, on November 13, 1970, the Syrian Minister of Defense, Hafez al-Assad, seized power in a bloodless military coup, euphemistically called the Corrective Movement, When he came to power, al-Assad worked quickly to create an organizational structure in his government and to consolidate control. After all, you can't be a dictator without control. His government then, working with the Arab Socialist Ba'ath Party, nominated a 173-member legislature called the People's Council. Then, the Ba'ath Party gave itself 87 seats, which simple math shows is 51% of control. As long as they stuck together, the remaining members' voices were moot. These remaining seats were divided among what were viewed as popular organizations and other minor groups. And make no mistake about it, this was not an elected body, so calling it a legislature is a bit misleading. Then, in March 1971, the party held its regional congress and elected a new 21-member regional command, of course headed by Assad. That same month, a national referendum was held to confirm Assad as president for a seven-year term. Note that this was not an election. No one else was running. The next year, in March 1972, Assad formed the National Progressive Front, a coalition of groups led by the Ba'ath Party, with the goal of broadening his base of support. At that time, elections were held to establish local councils in each of Syria's 14 sectors, One year later, a new Syrian constitution went into effect, which was shortly followed by parliamentary elections for the People's Council, the first legislative elections in Syria since 1962. The 1973 constitution defined Syria as a secular socialist state, with Islam acknowledged as the major religion. The new government was less than a year old when, on October 6, 1973, Syria and Egypt united and attempted a surprise invasion of Israel in what has become known as the Yom Kippur War. After intense fighting, the Syrians were repelled at the Golan Heights. By this time, they had to be thinking that the location was some sort of bad omen for them. The Israelis not only repelled the Syrians, but counter-invaded into Syria, beyond the 1967 boundary. As a result of this counterattack, Israel to this day continues to occupy the Golan Heights as part of the Israeli-occupied territories. In 1975, Assad announced he would be prepared to make peace with Israel in return for an Israeli withdrawal from what he called all-occupied Arab land. Now, I recognize I'm not a high-level diplomat or an international strategist, but that seems like a really odd thing to say. In essence... We'll make peace with you, if you give us back what we lost. Israel's response? No dice. In 1976, the Syrians proved yet again to have ambitions beyond their borders when their army intervened in the Lebanese Civil War. Their goal was to ensure that the status quo was maintained, meaning that they wanted the Maronite Christians to remain in power. At the time... It's probably a safe assumption that they had no idea this would entail a 30-year Syrian military occupation. And the occupation, of course, was not without controversy. In fact, Syrian forces have been accused of numerous criminal offenses in Lebanon, including the assassination of Rafiq Harari, Kamal Jabalat, and Bakur Gamal. Gamal was only 34 years old and president-elect of Lebanon when he was killed in a bomb attack. Remember his age of 34, for a few minutes. A few years later, in 1981, Israel declared its annexation of the fallover over Golan Heights. The next year, Israel invaded Lebanon and attacked the Syrian army, forcing it to retreat from several areas. Then, in 1983, Lebanon and Israel announced the end to their hostilities. But Syrian forces remained in Lebanon... Through the extensive use of surrogates, most in the form of unofficial guerrillas, Syria attempted to stop Israel from capturing southern Lebanon. Assad sent troops into Lebanon again in 1987, allegedly to enforce a ceasefire in Beirut. The TAFE agreement, partially sponsored by Syria, led to the end of the Lebanese civil war in 1990. Despite this, the Syrian army remained in Lebanon for 15 more years, while they continued to wield influence over Lebanese politics. Not to forget, the assassination of the popular former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafiq Harari in 2005 was blamed on Syria, leading to pressure on Syria to withdraw their forces. In April 2005, most Syrian forces withdrew from Lebanon, but some of its intelligence operatives remained. Obviously, this also drew international criticism. After the war's end, approximately 1 million Syrian workers immigrated to Lebanon, attempting to find reconstruction jobs. Partially in response to this, the Lebanese government granted citizenship to over 200,000 Syrian residents in Lebanon, drawing both internal and external disapproval. Internally, the Syrian government, after years of strife, puppet legislatures, and of course, coups, has had many critics and dissidents have routinely been repressed. A serious dispute arose in the late 1970s from fundamentalist Sunni Muslims who shunned the secular values of the Ba'ath program and objected to a government controlled by the Shia Alawis. The conflict between Shia and Sunni Muslims is about as old as the religion itself. After the Islamic Revolution in Iran... Still in the late 1970s, Muslim groups agitated protests leading to riots in Aleppo, Homs, and Hama, and even went as far as to attempt to assassinate Assad in 1980. Partly in reaction to the Sunnis, Assad began to stress Syria's adherence to Islam. At the start of the Iran-Iraq war, which was in September 1980, Syria supported Iran despite a long border with Iraq but recognize that this, too, was denominated by the Shia and Sunni conflict. The ultra-conservative Muslim Brotherhood, there's a name you should recognize, concentrated in the Syrian city of Hama, was ultimately crushed in February 1982, when portions of the city were bombarded by artillery fire that left between 10,000 and 25,000 people, mostly civilians, dead or wounded. And when you think you live in a repressive nation, Just remember that your army probably is not firing artillery at you. Since then, at least for about the next 30 years, public demonstrations against the government have been limited. Somewhat surprisingly, when Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, Syria joined the U.S.-led coalition against Iraq. But then again, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. This led to a slight thaw in relations with the U.S. and other Arab states, Syria also engaged in direct negotiations with Israel in the 1990s. But the talks were fruitless as they bogged down over the Golan Heights, and unfortunately, there was no further direct Syrian Israeli dialogue for many years. In 1994, Assad's son, Basal al Assad, who was thought to be the heir apparent, was killed in a car accident. Then, in 1998, Assad's brother, Rafit al Assad, was removed from the vice presidency. Hafez al-Assad died in June 2000 after three decades of rule. Immediately after his death, the Syrian parliament amended the constitution, reducing the mandatory minimum age of the president from 40 to 34 years old. Guess who was 34? Bashar al-Assad, the former Assad's second oldest son. This allowed Bashar to become eligible for nomination to the presidency By the ruling Bath Party. The next month, shocker, he was elected president by referendum, just like his father. And no, there were not any other names on the ballot this time either. After his election, there was hope for reforms in the government to the point that the period was deemed the Damascus Spring. The period was typified by the emergence of numerous political forums where groups of like-minded people met in private residences to debate and discuss political and social issues. The phenomenon spread rapidly in Damascus and somewhat less in other Syrian cities. Pro-democracy activists mobilized around a number of political demands. Then, in November 2000, Assad ordered the release of some 600 political prisoners. But, on the downside, the outlawed Muslim Brotherhood resumed its political activity. Also, in May 2001, Pope John Paul II visited Syria. The Damascus Spring then faded to summer, and the summer to fall, when the government suppressed the pro-reform movement. At this time, there were arrests of leading intellectuals interrupted by occasional amnesties. This lasted for about a decade. Despite the former alliance with the U.S. in the first Gulf War, tensions between the U.S. and Syria grew worse after 2002. At this time, in the post-September 11th reality, the U.S. claimed Syria was securing weapons of mass destruction. It also included the nation in a list of states that made up the so-called axis of evil. Overall, it was believed that the U.S. was critical of Syria because of its alliances with Hamas, the Islamic Jihad movement in Palestine, and Hezbollah. The U.S., Israel, and even the European Union regarded these three organizations as terrorist groups. In 2003, the U.S. threatened sanctions if Damascus failed to make what Washington termed the right decisions. In response, Syria denied the allegations that it was developing chemical weapons and aiding fugitive Iraqis. Then, an Israeli airstrike against a Palestinian militant camp near Damascus in October 2003 was, of course, met with Syrian rebuke. President Assad, attempting to foster international relations, visited Turkey in January 2004, the first modern Syrian leader to make such a trip. The visit was thought to signify the end of decades of bitter relations, but the thaw would not last as relations between the two states went cold again in 2011. Backing up a bit, in May 2004, the U.S. followed through with its threat and imposed economic sanctions on Syria, due to the perceived support of terrorism and its failure to stop militants entering Iraq. These sanctions only allowed for food and some medications to flow from the U.S. to Syria. Friction with the U.S. increased further in early 2005 after the assassination of the former Lebanese Prime Minister Harari in Beirut. Washington blamed, at least partially, the Syrian government. Damascus was then urged to withdraw its forces from Lebanon, It complied by April 2005. The opposition to the Syrian government escalated in October 2005, when activists launched what they called the Damascus Declaration, which criticized the Syrian government as authoritarian, totalitarian, and cliquish. That last word is theirs, and I'm assuming something may have been lost in translation. They also called for democratic reform. Two leading dissidents were sentenced to prolonged prison terms in 2007. Bashar al-Assad said he would reform the government, but the reforms were primarily limited to economic actions. Syria's international relations showed slow improvements in the 2000s. Diplomatic relations with Iraq were restored in 2006, after nearly a quarter century of little to no contact. In 2007, talks between Syria and the European Union were restarted. Also in 2007, the U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi met with President Assad in Damascus. But it must be noted that this was not a real diplomatic visit as the U.S. State Department, ultimately headed by President G.W. Bush, objected. But not long after this, the U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice met with Syrian Foreign Minister Walid Balulam. But then in September 2007 an Israeli airstrike hit a site in northern Syria. The Israelis claimed that the site was a nuclear facility that was under construction. They claimed that the North Koreans were aiding the Assad regime in this endeavor. In April 2008, Assad claimed that Syria and Israel had been negotiating a peace treaty for a year, with Turkey acting as a mediator. This was confirmed by Israel in May 2008. Of course, the status of the Golan Heights was a major obstacle to any peace treaty, and was also being discussed. In 2009, relations between the U.S. and Syria began to thaw again, as there were many high-level diplomatic meetings. Also, internally, stock trading was launched on the Syrian exchange in an attempt to demonstrate a reform of the state-controlled economy. Then, in 2010, the U.S. dispatched its first ambassador to Syria after a five-year hiatus. Like so many things Syrian, the warming of diplomatic relations was not to last, either. In May 2010, the U.S.-Obama administration renewed sanctions against Syria, once again claiming that it supported terrorist groups sought weapons of mass destruction and had provided Lebanon's Hezbollah with the notorious Scud missiles, in violation of numerous U.N. resolutions. And finally, in 2011, the U.N.'s International Atomic Energy Agency, a nuclear watchdog group, reported that Syria was maintaining covert nuclear programs. Which leads me up to the previously covered Syrian civil war. If you need a refresher, refer back to the episode on Aleppo. And with that is the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll retreat several thousand years to cover the history of the city of Damascus. Right now, I'm thinking that that should only take one episode. But as you've probably learned, sometimes I get into a subject and can't stop talking. Either way, you don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at ChristianHistoryPodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at ChristianHistoryPodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Finally, go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.